Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Hey, you might be wondering why this episode just got posted on a Friday, when normally we post episodes on Tuesday, and all of the audio talks about Tuesday. That's because I did post it on Tuesday, but for some reason, it wasn't working on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. So my host station told me to delete it and re-upload it and see if it works. So hopefully it works this time. Thank you for listening to Murder Bucket. I really appreciate all your support. Welcome to Tuesday. You are listening to another episode of the Murder Bucket podcast. We are currently in our cult miniseries, and tonight we will be discussing the People's Temple, better known as Jonestown or the Jonestown Massacre. In our episode tonight, we are going to find out everything we can about who James Warren Jones is, as well as where it all began. Before we get started, we're going to do our week-slash-weekend recap. The only thing interesting that happened this past week, besides the horrible demise of last Tuesday's episode that had to come out on Wednesday, is the fact that we redecorated our two-year-old's room on Saturday. Now let me just backtrack only a little bit to Friday when my husband and I and our daughter traveled to the closest Ikea to go pick up her bed. Now, what we didn't realize when we got there was how big the box was that her bed came in. You would think that when buying a toddler bed, this box is going to be relatively small. Well, it wasn't. It was probably the size of our car and a gigantic square. So, of course, it didn't fit inside of our car and we had to figure out how to attach it to the top. So here we are, two grown adults trying to jerry-rig this box on the top of our car with these little dingy tie-downs that Ikea gives you at the store. We did in fact make it home with no issues and on the way home we decided to stop at a local pizza place and pick up some pizza. Well, that was a disappointment. We didn't get what we ordered and the bottom of the pizza was like doughy and still had a whole bunch of flour on the bottom. So my husband had to put it in the oven, which didn't help it whatsoever. We did still up eating it, but it wasn't that great. So now we're on to Saturday where we get up at our normal time, like 8 eight thirty, and we have breakfast and then we decide to just go ahead and get started on her room because we know it is going to take a long time. So we set up a little play area in the hallway for her to kind of stay occupied while we did this and my husband started out with dismantling her crib and I worked on getting the decals off of her wall. We put up like these silhouettes of trees and Adventure awaits things on her wall, which, let me tell you, 
I would suggest not putting decals on walls because they are a pain in the butt to get off. I heated them up with a hairdryer and then tried to use a razor blade to get them off and it took forever. So my husband finally got the crib dismantled and we put it in the attic. And as I mentioned last week, I had to do the, you know, reorganization of the attic so the crib could fit up there, which it did perfectly. It was great. And then two of our friends, Phil and Taylor, came over, which was an absolute blessing because there would be no way we could get this room done in just one day for her to be able to sleep in her own room that same night. So when they finally showed up that morning, we went ahead and finished like taking all the things off of her walls and we spackled all the holes. And then we went out to lunch really quick, ran to Target to get a couple of things. And then when we came back, we started painting, which honestly, with me, my husband, Phil and Taylor, and then our good friend Noah, who actually lives with us, all painting just three walls, it didn't take very long. Then we had the fun time of waiting around for it to dry, making sure everything was painted completely and that we weren't missing any spots. Then after that was all finished, we got her bed out of her box, put it together, realized we were missing one tiny screw, but it actually didn't hinder us from finishing the bed and her being able to actually use it, which is a good thing. And then we moved all of her furniture around, got it kind of situated where I want to. It's not completely finished. We still need to anchor her bookshelf to the wall so we haven't put any of her books back. She can't use it right now, but that's okay because she has a ton of books all around the house. So we're not really too concerned with it right now and we don't really let her play in her room by herself. So we know that the bookcase is not going to fall on her if she's in there alone because she's not in there alone. And by the time we got everything finished, it was time for her to go to bed, which to be honest with you, wasn't really that difficult for her to actually go to bed in her room and stay in her bed, which I honestly thought was going to be a big deal. But from Saturday night, Sunday night, and then last night, she did really well. She woke up a couple of times, yes, got out of her bed and came to her door and cried. But really, she's been fairly good at staying in her bed. The only issue that we have is the initial like lay down. You kind of have to talk her into it, rock her a little bit, kind of get her almost completely asleep before she will lay down in the bed and actually stay there. And then we stay in her room for a few minutes to make sure like she's not gonna get up and walk to the door and then try to get out. So all in all, it's been really good. And that was my week. Nothing else interesting happened. And now you are here with me on this fabulous Tuesday, ready to listen to another episode in our cult miniseries. The People's Temple Part 1. James Warren Jones was born in Crete, Indiana on May 13, 1931. His father was a disabled World War I veteran and because of this, 
it led to his parents having marital and financial problems. According to several biographies, Jim's mom wasn't very maternal and would often neglect him. She claimed that her pregnancy was unwanted and that she was disappointed at becoming a mother. In the middle of the Great Depression, Jim's family was evicted from their home. They moved into a small shack near the town of Lynn. This shack did not have any plumbing or electricity. The family attempted to earn some type of income by farming, but Jim's father's health deteriorated even further. They were unable to get adequate food, so they ended up forging in the field nearby. Jim's parents were also absent from his life because of his father's illness and multiple hospitalizations. When he started school, their extended family threatened to cut off the financial assistance if his mother didn't get a job outside of the home. His aunt and uncle provided some supervision, but Jim was often left alone and wandered the streets naked. There were several women in the town that felt sorry for Jim and his situation, so they would bring him to their houses to give him nutrient meals and clothes. The wife of the pastor at a local Nazarene church, Myrtle Kennedy, began to grow attached to Jim. He started to stay at their home and attend church with them. He was given a Bible and was able to quote passages from an early age. He then began to attend several churches in the area each week and was baptized in most of them. Jim began to practice preaching in private and wanted to become a preacher himself. His mom did attempt to prevent him from attending church services after she caught him imitating a pastor of the local apostolic Pentecostal church. This pushed him even further into wanting to preach and evangelize in his own community. Then things started to get even weirder for Jim. He began to hold mock funerals for roadkill that he would bring back to his house. He wasn't able to get any of the kids his own age to attend his funerals, so he held them alone. He also started to visit a local casket manufacturer in his town. At one point, he stated that he was given special powers, including the ability to fly. He wanted to prove this to the other kids by jumping off of a building. Despite breaking his arm, he continued to claim that he had these special powers. As he got older, he started to use extremely offensive profanity when addressing people. He would say, good morning, you son of a bitch, or hello, dirty bastard. He would also put children's lives in danger by putting them in life-threatening situations. He once claimed that he was being guided by the angel of death. One time, he stole a Bible from the Pentecostal pastor and poured cow manure on Acts 2.38. He also replaced the holy water at a Catholic church with a cup of his own urine. Jim became extremely obsessed with Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party at the start of World War II. He said that he liked their pageantry, unity, and the power that Hitler wielded. Obviously, the people around him found this extremely disturbing. He would play the dictator when playing with the other children and would force them to goose-step when they disobeyed his orders. Goose-stepping is a specific march done by some militaries where you march and stick your legs straight out in front of you with every step. 
He would also force the other kids to do the Nazi salute and shout Hail Hitler as loud as possible. Jim then developed an interest in other religions and social doctrines. He spent many hours in the library reading things from Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Karl Marx, Mao Zedong, and Gandhi. In 1942, Myrtle Kennedy and her husband moved to Richmond. They allowed Jim to visit them on several occasions. During many of these visits, they attended religious conventions in the summer, which consisted of them going to services four times a week. When Jim returned home, many people in the community became so offended by his outspokenness that they demanded his mother do something. Of course, she did nothing. Instead, this made many parents keep their children away from Jim. He was an outcast by the time he entered high school. Even though Jim was a great student, he enjoyed getting into debates with his teachers. He had this bad habit of refusing to answer anyone who talked to him first. He always wore his Sunday best to school, even though everyone else just wore casual clothes. He carried a Bible everywhere he went. To alienate himself even further from his peers, he would confront them for drinking, smoking, and dancing. While Jim wasn't interested in playing sports, he was interested in becoming a coach on teams with younger children. While attending a baseball tournament in 1945, he noticed a real problem with discrimination against African Americans, and this influenced his strong aversion to racism. Jim and his father did not agree regarding anything about race. His father was very popular in the Indiana branch of the Ku Klux Klan. While the year 1945 was ending, so was Jim's parents' marriage. Jim and his mother moved to Richmond and they lost all financial support from their relatives. Jim started working as an orderly at Richmond's Reed Hospital so that he could support himself and his mother. While working there, he started dating a nurse in training named Marceline Baldwin. Jim graduated from Richmond High School in December of 1948 with honors. He later moved to Bloomington, Indiana and began to attend Indiana University Bloomington. Jim and Marceline got married on June 12, 1949, and their first home was in Bloomington. While Marceline worked at a nearby hospital, Jim continued school. He insisted on him and Marceline attending the Bloomington's Full Gospel Tabernacle, even though his wife was a Methodist. This resulted in them having constant arguments. They began attending a Methodist church on Sunday mornings and a Pentecostal church Sunday evenings and on the weekdays. That is a whole lot of church. Their marriage became even more strained as Jim was strongly opposed to the Methodist Church's racial segregation practices. In 1950, the couple unofficially adopted Marceline's nephew, Ronnie, and cared for him for over four years. In 1951, the family relocated to Indianapolis and Jim started taking night classes at Butler University. He eventually earned a degree in secondary education in 1961. That is 10 years after he initially enrolled in school. 
That is a long time to be in college for a degree in education, don't you think? So after hearing a sermon that talked about loving members of all races, Jim announced to his wife and her family that he was going to become a Methodist minister. Even though Jim was a communist, a Methodist district superintendent decided to help him get a job in a church. In 1952, Jim was hired as a student pastor at Somerset Southside Methodist Church. Two years later, he was dismissed from this position for stealing church funds, even though he claims that he left because other members forbade him from integrating blacks into his congregation. After he left, he went to a Pentecostal Latter Rain convention in Columbus, Indiana. While there, a woman prophesied that he was a prophet with a great ministry. While this did surprise him, he accepted the call to preach and delivered a message at the convention. When he got back, he started asking his wife to leave the Methodist church and told her that the Latter Rain movement would help him become a preacher. According to GotQuestions.com, the Latter Rain movement is an influence within Pentecostalism which teaches the Lord is pouring out His Spirit again, as He did at Pentecost, and is using believers to prepare the world for his second coming. Jim and his wife wanted to grow their family. He stated that integration was a personal thing for him, so this resulted in them adopting Agnes in 1954, who was part Native American. In that same year, Jim started to preach at the Laurel Street Tabernacle in Indianapolis, which was a Pentecostal Assemblies of God church. The pastor there would allow Jim to hold healing revivals. He would travel and speak at other churches that were also a part of the Latter Rain movement. When a new pastor was assigned to the Laurel Street Tabernacle, he began to enforce their denominational ban on all healing revivals. Jim decided to leave the church and establish the Wings of Healing. Wings of Healing was a charitable organization that promoted Jim's own ministry. He was able to get 20 people from the original church to follow him. With only 20 people following him, there was little to no financial support to continue in the way that he was going. He needed to come up with a way to support his own vision. In an article in the New York Times from 1953, it stated this, Declaring that he was outraged at what he perceived as racial discrimination in his white congregation, Mr. Jones established his own church and pointedly opened it to all ethnic groups. To raise money, he imported monkeys and sold them door-to-door as pets. Yeah, you heard that correctly. Jim Jones imported monkeys and sold them to people as pets. Jim began to associate with the Independent Assemblies of God which was an international group of churches that supported the Latter Rain movement. In 1956, he became an ordained minister. A leader in the Latter Rain movement, Joseph Matson Bowes, was the one to perform his ordination. In June of 1956, Jim held his first healing convention at Indianapolis's Cattle Tabernacle. He wanted a large crowd for this convention, 
So he asked William Branham, a healing evangelist and Pentecostal leader, to join him on the pulpit. By doing this, it attracted over 11,000 people. William issued a prophetic endorsement of Jim and his ministry, stating that God used the convention to send forth a new minister. After this convention was over, Jim had a huge following. So he decided to rename his church the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel. It was later shortened to the People's Temple. In 1957, the People's Temple hosted a second Pentecostal convention and William was invited to preach. After this convention, Jim was elected the president of the Pentecostal Convention Board. This also helped him secure connections throughout the Latter Rain movement. Jim adopted a key doctrine within the movement that he continued to promote throughout his entire life. This was called the Joel's Army and Manifested Sons of God. According to Wikipedia.com, the Joel's Army and Manifested Sons of God is this. A major feature of the expected latter reign would be the manifestation of the Sons of God or Joel's Army. The latter reign movement taught that as the end of the age approached, the overcomers would arise within the church. Various branches debated the nature and extent of this manifestation. These manifest sons of God, ones who have come into the full stature of Jesus Christ, would receive the Spirit without measure. They would be as Jesus was when he was on earth and would receive a number of divine gifts, including the ability to change their physical location, to speak in any language through the Holy Spirit, and to perform divine healings and other miracles. They would complete the work of God, restoring man's rightful position, as was originally mandated in Genesis. By coming into the full stature of Christ, they would usher in his millennial reign. Extreme versions of this interpretation referred to Jesus as a patterned son and applied ye are gods to this coming company of believers. Joel's army has been connected to dominion theology and fivefold ministry thinking. It has been described in the 21st century as a rapidly growing apocalyptic movement prophesied to become an Armageddon-ready military force of young people who will love their life unto death, who will stand face to face with the incarnation of Satan as the Antichrist and his army in the end of age. It was believed that God would manifest himself in other people by giving them supernatural gifts. Jim was obsessed with this idea and adapted it to promise his own ideas. He eventually believed that he himself was the manifestation of God. William became a major influence in Jim's life, so much so that Jim started to adopt his methods, doctrines, and styles. This was until he separated from the movement after a disagreement with William after he prophesied William's death. After this separation, Jim started to follow Father Divine. But who is Father Divine? He was an African-American spiritual leader from 1907 to 1965. He founded the International Peace Mission Movement, formulated its doctrine, 
and oversaw its growth from a small, predominantly black congregation into a multiracial and international church. Many people believe that he was a cult leader due to his ideology. Father Divine believed that he was in fact God. He would make contributions toward his followers' economic independence and racial equality. Jim visited Father Divine's peace mission in Philadelphia and stated that the visit was so that he could give an authentic, unbiased, and objective statement about its activities to his fellow ministers. Jim then started to structure the People's Temple leadership and organized mission work on how Father Divine does in his own ministry, even though he would publicly disavow his teachings. In 1958, Jim visited Father Divine again. This visit was to learn how to manipulate the members of the People's Temple. He was told to find an enemy and to make sure his members knew who that enemy was. Once he got back from this visit, he started to brag to his members that he was going to be the successor of Father Divine and that there were several things within both of their ministries that were exactly the same, especially their outreach programs. Some of Jim's outreach programs included a soup kitchen, a clothes closet, and a food bank for those in need. In 1959, Jim and his wife wanted to expand their family again, so they adopted three Korean-American children named Lou, Stephanie, and Suzanne. This same year, Jim and his wife had their only biological child and named him Stephen Gandhi. During all of this, he would encourage his members to adopt orphans from the war-ravaged Korea. In 1960, the People's Temple officially joined the Disciples of Christ denomination. Jim was then ordained in the denomination as a Disciples Minister by Archie A. James. At the time, Disciple memberships were open to anyone. The Disciple of Christ stated that the People's Temple was an exemplary Christian ministry that was overcoming human differences and was dedicated to human services. Between 1966 and 1977, the People's Temple contributed over $1.1 million to the Disciples of Christ denomination. The Indianapolis mayor, Charles Boswell, appointed Jim the director of the local Human Rights Commission. During this, he was able to help racially integrate churches, restaurants, the phone company, the Indianapolis Police Department, a theater, an amusement park, and the Indiana University Health Methodist Hospital. There was a time where swastikas were painted on houses on two black families. Jim walked through the neighborhood to comfort those in the black community and urged white families not to move. On several occasions, he set up sting operations that would catch restaurants that were refusing to serve black customers. In 1961, Jim collapsed and was taken to a hospital. He was accidentally placed in the black ward, but refused to be moved. He began to help the black patients make their beds and empty their bedpans. These actions caused hospital officials to desegregate the wards. 
In this same year, Jim and his wife became the first white couple in Indiana to adopt a black child. They named him James Warren Jones Jr. Jim also fathered a child with Temple member Carolyn Layton and named him Jim John. Now you should remember the name Carolyn Layton as she is going to come up later on. Jim and his wife then adopted a white son from another member of the temple and named him Tim. The People's Temple began to receive criticism and became the target of white supremacists. There was a swastika painted on the side of the temple's building, as well as a stick of dynamite that was left in a coal pile. Someone threw a dead cat at Jim's home after he received a threatening phone call. Now, Jim wasn't phased by any of these things. Instead, he continued to help with desegregation. This attracted more and more people to his church, and by the end of 1961, he was considered the main person responsible for Indianapolis being a far more racially integrated city than any other. Now, even though Jim was considered to be this main person responsible for this, he told the members that he had received visions of a nuclear attack that was going to destroy Indianapolis and that his family and him needed to move. His wife told her friends that she felt as though he was paranoid and fearful of this attack. He decided to travel with his family to Belo Horizonte, Brazil, with the idea of scouting out places for the People's Temple to move. On the way there, they visited Guyana. In Belo Horizonte, they rented a house and Jim began to study the local economy and the receptiveness of racial minorities. He also explored the local Brazilian syncretistic religions. With the lack of resources that he found in Belo Horizonte, he moved to Rio de Janeiro in 1963. Here, he worked with the people that lived in the favelas, also known as the slums. He would often travel to Georgetown, Guyana, where they held revival meetings. When he was unable to find what he considered a suitable place for the People's Temple, he soon felt guilty for abandoning the civil rights struggle in Indiana. While he lived in Rio de Janeiro, the attendance of the temple went from 400 to 100. Even with the decline in members, Jim demanded that they send all their revenue to help support his efforts in Brazil. The church went into debt, and Archie and James threatened to resign from his position if Jim did not return soon. After much reluctance, Jim and his family moved back to Indiana in December of 1963. He soon found out that because of their financial issues and the smaller congregation, he had to sell the People's Temple Church building and relocate to a smaller building nearby. In order to reverse their financial issues, Jim started to participate in revivals again, as well as hold healing campaigns. He did end up telling his congregation that the world was going to be engulfed in a nuclear war on July 15, 1967, and told them that they must move to Northern California for safety. In 1964, he started to make frequent trips to California so that he could find the perfect location for the church. In July of 1965, 
they moved all of their things to Redwood Valley near the city of Ukiah. One of the temple's assistant pastors, Russell Winberg, told many members of the church that Jim was abandoning Christianity. Russell ended up taking over leadership of the Indianapolis church when Jim decided to move. 140 members of the People's Temple ended up leaving Indianapolis and moving to California to follow Jim, while the rest stayed behind to follow Russell. Jim was able to use his degree from Butler University to secure a job as a history and government teacher at an adult education school in Ukiah. While in this position, he was able to recruit more people to his church. He did this by teaching his students about the benefits of Marxism. There were several loyal members that attended each of his classes to help him with recruitment. In just a few short months, he was able to recruit 50 new members. He was also able to convince 75 more people to move from Indianapolis to California. By 1968, Jim was able to get the People's Temple of California admitted to the Disciples of Christ and began to use this connection to promote his church as part of the 1.5 million member denomination. By 1969, he was able to increase the membership in California to well over 300. We're going to end part one here, and next week, we're going to discuss Jim's focus and influence in San Francisco, as well as starting to unpack everything we know about Jonestown. Before you go, please take a moment to listen to the promo from my friends at the Corpus Delecti podcast. Hey y'all, Jen and Lindsay here from Corpus Delicti Podcast, here to tell you to check out our show. If true crime is your thing, it's ours too, with a touch of lightheartedness and a dash of Southern charm. We cover compelling cases and crack them open for you. Serial killers, hitmen, historical hallmarks, we've got it all and bring you new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and most other podcast apps. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter too. That's C-O-R-P-U-S-D-E. L-I-C-T-I. See you Tuesday. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Murdbucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.